man once gave a great banquet and invited a lot of guests. When the banquet was ready, he sent a servant to tell the guests, Everything is ready. Please come. One guest after another started making excuses. The first one said, I bought some land and I've got to look it over. Please excuse me. Another guest said, I bought five teams of oxen and I need to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another guest said, I've just gotten married and I can't be there. The servant told his master what happened. The master became so angry that he said, Go as fast as you can to every street and alley in town. Bring in everyone who is poor or crippled or blind or lame. When the servant returned, he said, Master, I've done what you told me, and there is still plenty of room for more people. His master then told him, Go out along the back roads and fence rows and make people come in so that my house will be full. Not one of the guests I first invited will even get a bite of my food. It's a happy and peppy animation to get the sermon started from our Christian friends uh, from India uh, who put that together. And it's, it's really well done. Good animation is like that. Not just first graders who can understand the story better, but mature grown-ups as well, um, the most intellectual, because it just visually brings it to life for us. This story is happy, and it, at least it starts that way. It starts upbeat and optimistic and very hopeful. A king, Jesus says talking about what heaven will be like. As we've been reading through the whole Holy Bible in a year, and if you're new to hope, you can jump right in and you'll be able to catch up as we go. And as you heard in the announcements next week uh, for our Sunday fun day here in our Western Wine campus, we're going to have um, an open Q&A for any of you who are tripping over some of the readings from Old or New Testament. So you can, you can bring those and we'll have a panel of pastors to, to help try to guide you through the difficult parts and there are some difficult parts, including this story that I'm going to preach on today. It starts happy, it starts upbeat, and then everything starts to turn. It starts by saying, a king, nope, back, a king prepared a great wedding feast for his son. And so, wow, who doesn't want to come to a royal wedding feast? Who, who doesn't want to be invited to a royal wedding? Who, who doesn't, well, maybe I wouldn't honestly, truth be told, but there's all sorts of other reasons for that. Like, I don't want to go to some sort of stuffy place like that, but I do... I do actually want to be invited to this banquet, and so do you. And it's a metaphor. It's a story. It isn't meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken seriously. And so Jesus says, there's a king. He had a big banquet, a big wedding feast that everybody would want to be at, that people would try to get to. They'd trip over themselves to say, I'm invited to this wedding feast, this royal wedding feast. But then everything starts to fall apart and like Kenan Thompson on SNL, we start to get this look on our face where we read along and this is where it gets a little bumpy. So put your harness straps on, pull them nice and tight because it's going to get a little bumpy here for a while. And I'll, I'll, let's hit these all right up front because the wrath of God is coming through. Have you noticed yet that wrath of God isn't just an Old Testament thing, it's a New Testament thing too? Justice of God, judgment of God, those are real things. Those are biblical things. As uncomfortable as, as it makes us, there is a truth in that, and that truth ultimately points us to a freedom. And I want to tell you right up front that this story is going to end well. That ultimately it's a hope-filled story, truly. The way it starts is the way it ends. 
It's just in the middle it gets a little bumpy. Including language like this. Seized his messengers, insulted and killed them, the crowd that didn't want to come to the banquet. Next verse. So the king sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. That's a little harsh. Uh, A few verses later, so bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness. The guy who shows up to the wedding and dares to wear the wrong clothes. It's like, wear this, not that. Well, you wore the wrong thing. Wardrobe, faux pas. You're out of the banquet. Is is God really like that? Like, if you show up wearing the wrong thing in heaven, are you going to get kicked out? Is that what he means? Stay tuned, now that I have your attention. Bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness, the guy who showed up wearing the wrong clothes, the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which sounds a whole lot like hell because it is. Chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus says, for, as he concludes the story, this really difficult verse, difficult to digest. Did you catch this as you were reading through it this last week? For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, that's a little scary. You mean there are people who are called to follow Jesus? They're called to come into the kingdom of heaven, but they're not chosen to get in? How do I get on the chosen list instead of just the invite list? What are you talking about, Jesus? Did you really mean that? Is there some way we can interpret our way out of it and just make it more palpable and comfortable for everybody? Not really. But we do want to dig into what it really means. And the deeper we dig into it, the more you'll notice this. But I do want to ask you right up front, are you, are you good? Are you okay? Like Taylor Swift famously asked in a music video about a decade ago. Of course, she was saying that through her window to the boy she had a crush on across the street. But never mind that. I want to know if you're okay. Are you good? And how do you det- determine if you're good, bro? <laughs> if you're good, sis. How do you decide? You're making a lot of money? Is that what makes you good? You're popular? You've got status and position, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're doing well, you're, you're, you're in line for that promotion, you're good. You got a new car, you're good. Your team's playing today, if you're a Chiefs fan and you're feeling pretty good about it, you're, you're good. Will you be good if they don't win? I hope they win. But will you be good? Or you're, you know, cheer for the Niners or somebody else, Brock Purdy, go, oh, wow, yeah, that's awesome. The same Brock Purdy who did our Super Bowl food drive promo for us just two years ago. It's, it's just wild. That's just wild. It's just too crazy. The, the little Brock Purdy all grown up and trying to win a Super Bowl. <laughs> what makes you good? On a deeper level, spiritual level, because you know we're a church, what makes you good with God? How do you know? That's the title of the sermon. Who's going to be in heaven? Who's good? Who's getting in? Who's not getting in? Where does God draw the line? How do we know? Instead of just what you want it to be, do you want to know what the Bible says? Do you know what God says about who's getting into his kingdom, who's invited to his banquet, who's chosen for it, who's in and who's out? I've got good news for you ultimately today, but it is going to get a little bumpy as we go. Let's retell the story one more time to make sure we're all on the same page. And it starts, we'll start in verse 3 this time. When the banquet was ready... The king, Jesus is telling the story, it's worth noting that. The king sent his servants, his messengers, to notify all those in the community who were invited to the banquet. But they all refused to come. We know from the Old Testament that there's this old covenant that God makes with his people through Abraham and Abraham and Sarah's descendants, and that they were his chosen people, Israel. That Israel is his chosen nation. And like it or not, that's what they are. And later God will say, I didn't choose you because you were better than other nations. I chose you because I chose you and you don't get to know why. 
So we're just going to have to leave it at that. We're just going to have to say it's one of those mysteries that, that will be solved for us, not this side of heaven, but, but, but when we get there. When the banquet was ready, the king sent his servants to notify the chosen nation, the people of God, the, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. The banquet's ready. Come on in. Which, of course, Jesus is telling the story not really about the wedding banquet, but about the history of religion about the history of faithfulness with God and how God chose Israel and God sent teachers and prophets to Israel. And sometimes those prophets were received well and sometimes they were rejected. But they continued to be sent by God. God continued to send these messengers. And now into these New Testament, New Covenant times, Jesus is now showing up in person. God in flesh is showing up. We read in Matthew chapter 1 that when Jesus is born, his name is Emmanuel, which means... God is with us. Everyone say, God is with us. That's kind of the big point in Matthew's gospel. God is with us. In fact, he's going to end that way. The very last verse, the bottom line is, go make disciples, baptize and teach, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with us when Jesus is born. God will be with us now to the end of the age. Along the way, Jesus tells this story. He says, you remember the old covenant. The king sent messengers and prophets and teachers to tell people you're invited to the banquet. But they refused. They refused to come. They started getting smug, spiritually speaking. Or apathetic. I don't know if I need, I'm pretty busy. I've got a lot of other really important things in my life and God, you know, it's nice and everything, but you're not the most important thing in my life. I, I, I've got other things to, uh, on my schedule. I, I'm so busy. It's interesting how in, in our culture today we wear busyness as a badge of honor. So much so that now half the time when people ask other people uh, in our culture, how you doing, the response is busy. It's not I'm fine or I'm good. It's busy. I'm, I'm super busy. Which is like, so I'm winning, because I'm busy. I've got a lot going on, you know. It's like Cosmo Kramer walking into Jerry's apartment. Oh, I'm busy, Jerry. I've got a lot of things. I've got things going on up here right now. And we wear that like a badge of honor. We say, oh, well, that's, that's me. I'm so super busy. I've got so many things. I'm busier. I'll see you're busy, and I'll double it. I'll you think you're busy. You don't know busy like I know busy. Busy is one of the devil's best tools. He does not need to make you an atheist. He just needs to get you busy. So busy and distracted, you take your eyes off Jesus. So busy and distracted, you start thinking, I got some more important things going on in my life than God. I got some more important invitations to deal with than going to, you know, this heavenly banquet. I got some other things that are bigger issues in my life. And in our world, then, then, then where we all end up and how it all sorts out. But we don't. I don't know when it became kind of trendy within Christianity to say, oh, let's not talk about eternal life. Let's not talk about everlasting life. Let's not, let's not talk about the things that go on forever. Let's just talk about right here and right now. And I get it. It's a bit of a correction from Christians who had this pie-in-the-sky theology and doctrine and understanding where it's like, well, we're going to use Jesus as an insurance policy for heaven and to get us into the afterlife to make sure that we're, we're saved, make sure that we're going to be okay like that. And then nothing else really matters at all. Well, Actually, it matters a lot. Right now matters a lot, not just eternal future to God. 
But in, a, in an effort to do kind of an overcorrection, it's kind of become trendy amongst Christians, teachers, authors, theologians, preachers, to say things like, well, I don't want to talk about eternity in heaven. That's not really what it's about. It's about right now. I get it. I get what you're saying. But it is about both. Biblically speaking, the gift of following Jesus Christ and receiving in our hearts His grace that is amazing isn't just about right now. It is also about everlasting life. And to minimize that or to ignore that gift is to really kind of ignore what we're reading, especially in the New Testament. Through the Gospels, this will be a repeated theme that Jesus isn't just showing up to give you stuff right here and right now, new life starting today, but he's here to give you that new life that's going to go on forever. Because once you got it, you got it. You're in. So when the banquet was ready, the king sent his servants, his messengers, to notify the people of God. It's time for the banquet. Come on in. But they were busy. They were distracted. They had a lot of things going on, and so they refused to come. Maybe some of them politely. Oh, I'm so sorry I can't make it. I've got something better happening. Kind of like the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders who, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, just step over the man who's suffering and hurting and needs their help. I'm a little busy. I've got too many things happening to help you right now. The story goes on. As Jesus tells it, next verse. So the king sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared, everything is ready, come to the banquet. It's fascinating. If you were God and all you cared about was justice and judgment and drawing the line and these people are in and these people are out, after you send out the invitation and people don't come, wouldn't you just say, okay, I'll wash my hands of you. You're done, you're out. That's it. But the way Jesus tells this story, the king keeps coming with new invitations. Which should tell you something about this king, this God, is Jesus tells this story. That this king is relentlessly pursuing you. That the king, God, will never give up on you. Even when you reject him. Even when you refuse his invitation. Behold, Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door of your heart, he's saying, and I'm knocking, and if you just would open that door and receive the gift of new and everlasting life I have for you by God's amazing grace, I will come in and we will have communion. We will have fellowship. We will be tight. We will, we will, become, we will become friends, and it will be forever. The kingdom of heaven is like this, Jesus says. And he makes the point very clear. It's not just two times. There's going to be another time coming up here where Jesus is going to say that, that God's going to do it again after he gets rejected again. God is not a God who washes his hands of you or your loved ones. Don't give up on them because God hasn't given up on them. God is relentlessly pursuing them I think I just tucked my tie into my pants. I don't know how that happened. And he's relentlessly pursuing you, even when you tuck your tie into your pants. Because he's got grace for preachers who are kooky. Everything is ready, the king says. Come to the banquet. This time they'll come. Maybe they just, you know, didn't realize that they were too busy to even open the invitation. But if they get another one and it says it's from the king and it has his royal seal in the wax before it melted, you'll know this is the greatest invitation I could ever receive. But, next verse, 
The guests he had invited ignored these servants, these messengers as well, and they went their own way. Too busy. Remember the old Sunday school song? I cannot come to the banquet, don't trouble me now. I have married, me, I'm the only one. I have married a wife, I have bought me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. I cannot come. <laughs> Do not encourage, don't, don't. I will go back to only singing in front of VBS kids. For, I, 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 I will do that. I can't come. I got fields and commitments, and I just got married. I, I've got business deals. I, I've got things going on. I, I, I've, got an, I've got a schedule. I've got stuff. The devil doesn't need to make you an atheist. Just needs to make you too busy for God. Too distracted to make something else the main thing other than that one thing that is the main thing. The guests he invited ignored him. And they went their own way, and some of them went even further. They, um, they murdered the messengers, which, of course, is Jesus saying, I sent you prophets, and you killed some of them. You wiped them out. Now, they had truth for you that would have set you free, but you were so stuck in your religious traditions and your power and your control and your busyness and your distractions that you just couldn't stand hearing this message that there's something more important going on in your life than the things that you say are the most important things going on in your life. Repent. You killed my prophets. You killed my messengers. The king was furious, Jesus says, as the story goes on. And among other things, he says, now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. Here he comes again. God will never give up on you. He will relentlessly pursue you and continue to invite you and tell you there is a seat at the table in the kingdom of heaven that has your nameplate on it. To put it another way, as the Bible will later in the New Testament, your name is written in the book of life. Your name has been written. And only you, as God orders it, are going to be the one who erases it. So the servants and the messengers went out and they brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. <laughs> Say what? Okay, God, now your grace is getting a little too radical. You're going to let bad people into heaven? That does not fit the theology of American folk religion, does it? Where you ask the average American in any survey that's ever been done, this is what comes up. How, who's going to be in heaven? Who, who's going to make it? The answer, good people. Who's not going to make it? The answer, number one, survey says, bad people. Good people are in, bad people are out, is what American folk religion teaches. But Jesus teaches something quite contrary. So who do you trust? People who want it to be a certain way. People who say, well, I like to think of myself as a pretty good person because I don't do what they do. And we tend to draw those moral circles rather conveniently. Like, here's, oh sure, I have some sins and I have some things that aren't quite right. But God doesn't care about those as much as he cares about that. Or that. Or what they're doing. I'm sorry to point to the center field bleachers. I don't mean you're like the worst sinners here at Hope. But if you really love Jesus, you'd sit in the front row kidding if I wasn't preaching I'd be up there with you good seats so we have this 
tension that suddenly pops up in the story, but Jesus did not make a mistake here. In fact, the original Greek word for bad is evil. Good and evil alike are invited into the kingdom of heaven. So now this is starting to sound like the heresy of universalism. Jesus isn't a universalist, is he? Which means everyone's going to get into heaven. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, it doesn't matter where your faith is or no faith. Or it doesn't matter at all. You, you just do whatever you want, you're in. It's a heresy. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying what the Bible will say later, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. It is God's will that everyone would be saved. Did you know the Bible says that? It's God's will that everyone would be saved? There is a um, theology that's called double predestination or Calvinism or neo-Calvinism, and love those folks, and with all due respect, though, the Bible doesn't talk about double predestination in a way that you can support it completely throughout all of Scripture. Because you bump up to passages like 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, which says it's God's will that everyone would be saved. And so Luther came along and he says, well, actually, the Bible talks about single predestination. And it is God predestining all of us for the kingdom of heaven forever. He wants all of us to be saved. Think about the way this story ends again. Many are called. And the Greek word kind of alludes to everyone is called. God wants everyone to be saved. God calls you. God calls your neighbors, God calls your co-workers, God calls your classmates, God calls your friends, God calls your family, God calls your enemies. God calls everyone, good and bad alike, to be saved. Many are called, but few are chosen. So that's where the heresy of universalism dissolves. And Calvinism, Calvinism is pushed into a corner too. And we're left with a God, biblically, who says, I want everyone to be saved. And yet, not everyone is, the Bible clearly says. So what happens between God wants everyone to be saved and not everyone is saved? Well, God gives us the freedom. He gives us an invitation. Here's my amazing grace. Will you claim it? Will you put your trust in it? Will you make it your own? Or will you just go through the motions of making religion a philosophy and thinking about these things. Will you open the door? Will you open your heart? Will you come to the banquet? Will you receive the gift? Will you make God a priority? Will, will you allow God's grace to be amazing for you? It's not about you. It's not about how good you are or how bad you are. Jesus makes that clear in 22.10, Matthew 22.10. Good and bad alike are invited. But here's the thing, the bad can't bring their bad into the kingdom of heaven. They'll be transformed. And if we're going to be honest, we're all bad. We all have bad sin. We all have stuff that would keep us out of God's kingdom, which is why we need God's grace to get in. We need his grace. We need his love to be radical. But then you say, well, what about Lloyd and Harry when, when they get to heaven and they're wearing the wrong clothes? What about the king who comes in to meet the guests and he notices there's a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. And he kicks them out and throws them into, the, into hell, basically is what Jesus says. Is that what God's going to do if we show... Wow, I didn't realize God was superficial. It, it's wear this, don't wear that. Like fashion matters to God, apparently. That you have to wear formal attire to get into heaven or whatever the attire is. No, that's not what's going on. What's going on is this. In first century Middle Eastern culture, when, uh, 
there would be a royal wedding or a banquet like this, the wedding robes would be distributed as invited guests came into the banquet hall. Isn't that cool? It's like going to a five-star hotel and getting a free bathrobe, right? You, you, you just get it. It's yours. You get to take it. It's part of, the, part of being a guest in, in, in that hotel. Part of being an invited guest into the kingdom of heaven is God gives you the robe. God gives you the proper attire and the proper clothes. So this is a story. This part of the story is Jesus saying, there are some people, Pharisees, who think they can define what the kingdom of heaven is. That they can wear whatever clothes they want. They're, they're clothes of power and control and exclusion and violence and hatred. But here's the thing that happens when the kingdom of heaven becomes real for us. When God's amazing grace becomes real for us. I mean, when grace gets amazing, we can't stay the same. You could never be the same if God's grace really overwhelmed your heart and soul and mind. That's when the transformation happens. That's when everything goes from, from, from what was to what is. And there's a radical transformation. God's grace does that. This is why God's grace is powerful enough to wash clean our sins and to kick open the door to eternal life for us. Here's your robe. Here's your rope. You have not earned it. I have not earned it. Lest any of us get mistaken on this. Ephesians chapter 2. You are saved by God's grace. His amazing grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Through trusting him enough to say this invitation is for me. I'm coming to the banquet. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians 2 goes on to say, And this is not your own doing lest any of us should boast. But it is a free gift from God. The way you don't get into heaven is you refuse the free gift. You're on the Titanic and it's going down and somebody says, here's a lifeboat and there's room for everybody. You say, yeah, I'll pass. Here's Jesus Christ who dies on the cross for you to, to crucify your sin and is raised up to a new and an everlasting life and says, I want you to join me in that resurrection. I want to crucify your sin and raise you up to a new and an everlasting life. You say, yeah, I'll pass. That's how you don't get into heaven. Everyone is called. Everyone is called. It is God's will that everyone be saved, but not everybody is. Because not everybody comes. Not everybody receives the gift of God's amazing grace. Transformation happens. And what Jesus is saying here in this part of the story is you don't get to come into God's house. You don't get to come into God's kingdom. You don't get to come into God's heaven and set the agenda and do it your way. And say that it's all about your traditions, the way you want it to be. There's no humility in that. There's no truth in that. There's no ultimate life in that. But when you come into my kingdom, leave your hatred at the door. And let me give you a new robe of love. When you come into my kingdom, leave your cynicism at the door. And let me give you a new robe of encouragement for other people around you instead of criticism for them. When you come into my kingdom, leave your violence at the door. And when you come into my kingdom, come in as peacemakers. Because in my kingdom, there's no room 
for murders of, of Asian Americans like there were in Monterey Park in California recently, or, or, or the death of, of another African American man in, in, in another case in Memphis, which is causing all sorts of chaos and is top of the headlines now. And there isn't room for, it's not just Memphis and California, there isn't room for the violence that happens in Des Moines, Iowa this past week, where my friend Will Keeps is shot, a guy who's leading an outreach to troubled youth in our community, and two of those youth are shot and killed. My goodness, how off. There's no, you don't get to bring that into God's house. I don't get to bring that. And it's not just the stuff that we can say, well, they do, whoever they are. It's the stuff I do. I don't get to bring it. I don't get to bring my sin. I don't get to bring those things through the door. New clothes, new robe, transformation. Listen, Hope, it's time to change clothes. I'm not talking about superficially what you're wearing right now. I'm talking about something deep down from the inside out. It's time to be transformed. Above all, Colossians 3.14 says, a, a verse, a passage of scripture that's read at like a third of the weddings that I do. Be forgiving, be kind, do these things. But above all, clothe yourselves with love. Put on robes of love and grace for one another that God gives to you. It's time to change our clothes. You say, well, I will someday when I get to heaven, after I die. That's not what the Bible says. Let me tell you something amazing. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Now is the time. Today could be the day that your eternal life starts. You say, well, slow down there, preacher boy. I do not want to die today. I didn't say that. Your salvation starts here. What is it that Jesus taught us to pray? Earlier as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, fast forward, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Start now. As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, now is the time, right here and right now. Today is the first day of your everlasting life if you put on these new clothes. Leave the hate and the cynicism and the critical spirit and the pride and, and, and the arrogant, spiritual arrogance and the smugness and, and the power and the control and the distractions. Leave it at the door. Start your new life today. The transformation begins as soon as God's grace gets real for you. As soon as you stop just minimizing it as a, as a mental, intellectual exercise. And you actually open your heart to receive it. How do you do that? Just ask God in. That's how you go from called to chosen. It's when God's grace gets real for you. You put your trust in it. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this has not got anything to do with you, the Bible says. But it is a free gift. Just open it. Take the robe home. Live it out in your daily life. Put on new clothes. Above all, clothe yourselves with love for many are called and few are chosen. Be the few. Be those who do not get distracted, who do not get too busy, who do not minimize the gift or potentially just as bad who think that you don't need the gift, who think that you're good enough, that you're moral enough, that you're religious enough. That, 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 you're, that you're successful enough, that you've made it. I started the sermon by asking, are you good? How do you know you're good in God's eyes? Only by his amazing grace. And that's going to turn the world right side up. 
or suddenly everything is different. The last are first, the first are last. The greatest are the chief servants. And so it is in the kingdom of heaven. And we don't get to walk in with the clothes we want to wear and say, we don't want it to be that way. We want it to be the people who are successful and powerful and the movers and shakers of this world will be exactly the same in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, no, here's what heaven actually looks like. Let me take a closer look. And so movers and shakers and successful and wealthy and people who are making it in this world hear the good news of God's amazing grace. If you want to be successful eternally, you're going to have to start living for something else as your number one goal, something bigger. For many are called, but few are chosen. So who's out and in according to Jesus? According to this story, the people who are out are the people who are too busy, too apathetic, or too smug for God's grace. It didn't say people who are too busy aren't getting into heaven. It said if that busyness keeps you from experiencing God's grace... If the apathy, I don't need it. I mean, whatever. It's all good. It's not all good. We're all bad. We need a savior. Or our spiritual smugness like the Pharisees had. We don't, I mean, God sent them the gift of Jesus Christ. He showed up. I am with you. His name, Emmanuel, means God is with you. And they couldn't see it because they were so blinded by their power and control and religious traditions. Jesus will say in Matthew's gospel, we read this. For the sake of tradition, you can make void the word of God. Is your Christianity just a series of traditions and rituals and things that you go through? I'm telling you, those traditions and those rituals and those things that you do will come to life in a whole new way as soon as God's grace gets real for you. It'll awaken your soul in a way that maybe it never has been before or it's been a long time. The devil doesn't need to make you an atheist. He just needs to make you too busy or too apathetic or too smug or to think that you're going to get in because you're a good person. I'm not, and you aren't either. We're going to get in because of God's grace and how amazing it is. The people who are in are those who know that we're invited, called, and who put on these new clothes. In other words, who put our trust in God's amazing grace who believe that what Jesus did on the cross and through the empty tomb matters for eternity and for right now. God's grace, let it be real for you. One more thing. Jesus talks about these messengers three different times in this story, and that's us too in this story. Go out, he says to the messengers, into the busiest intersections in town and invite anyone you can find to the banquet. kind of people would we be if we knew the only way to get into heaven is by God's amazing grace and we had loved ones who were too busy, too apathetic, or too smug to make any room for God's grace in their life and we just said, oh well, whatever. Who cares? It doesn't matter. To heck with them. I know that's not what's in the depth of your heart. So who will you invite who will you invite to come and meet Jesus and to get to know his amazing grace? Where are the intersections in your life, in the towns that you live in, wherever you might be, whatever campus or local site or wherever you're watching online right now around the world? Who will you this week go out and invite to the banquet to let them know the good news? you know your name is written in the kingdom of heaven? In the book of life? Do you know you've got a seat reserved for you? at the banquet table, 
And if you think, oh my goodness, is it, is it a wedding banquet that goes on forever? I don't know if I want to go to heaven anymore. No, it's a metaphor. It'll be the greatest joy you've ever experienced this side of heaven. Multiply it. No eye has seen, the Bible says. No ear has heard. When Jesus talks about how great heaven is, he can only use metaphors because he knows that our minds, hearts, and souls this side of heaven wouldn't be able to fathom it all, take it all in. So he says, it's valuable. It's this incredible gift, as I preached on a couple of weeks ago, this, this precious pearl, this great treasure that you give up everything to grab onto. If you knew how good heaven was, you wouldn't be distracted from Jesus. You wouldn't have other things on the top of your list that are above grace and how much God loves you and living for that and living that out on a daily life. So last week, my wife and I uh, were in Charlotte because we have a new grandson. Uh, it was on social media, so I think a lot of you know that. But there's Miles Joseph Householder and um, some pictures of him being held by his mother, our daughter-in-law Liz, and our son John, and even his big sister Addie. Man, we had so much fun down there for the last three, four days. And we weren't sure we were going to make it back because the flights weren't working out. And then the morning flight was full and we fly standby because of Sally's, she's an airline employee. The only way we can fly is if there aren't, if there's an empty seat or two. We couldn't get on, so we're running all over the Charlotte airport. And then they fly us to the world's busiest airport in Atlanta. And that was chaos, but we got here. There's a part of me that wishes we couldn't have made it, you know? Spend another weekend with our new grandson and our granddaughter and our family, but I'm glad I'm here. Really wanted to share this message with you. And while I did the podcast from Charlotte, I didn't think it would be appropriate to do the sermon from Charlotte too. Here's, here's the thing I feel about Miles, who um, I already love more than life itself. Isn't it amazing how God puts that in us? The ability to love someone like that. And by the way, I'm going to say this right now. This will be the last, first and last weekend I'll be showing you grandkid pictures of Miles. At least not week in and week out, right? I won't be that grandpa. But this is fresh news. This is his first Sunday of life ever. He's watching his first church service ever right now. Hi, Miles. It's grandpa. Why do our voices change when we talk to our grandkids? I love that kid. I, I love his sister. I, I love his mom and his dad. Of all the things that I could do for Miles, I think about what my grandpas did for me. They taught me, my mom and grandpa taught me how to throw a curveball and how to do a chip shot in golf and, and how to do it better than I was doing it before. He taught me right from wrong, you know, solidified what my parents were teaching me. And I I saw him as an example. Well, here's how you do life, and here's how you don't do life. I hope I can do that for Miles, imperfectly. But I hope I can pass on for him what my grandpa passed on to me, because it matters. But of all the gifts that I hope Miles will receive in his life, of all the blessings I hope that he will receive, by far the greatest one is the one Jesus teaches about in this parable. In Matthew 22, I hope he knows his name. <laughs> it's already written in the kingdom of heaven. He's got a seat. You do too. Of all the things he could ever experience in his life, success, 
right? Find the right person, get married, have family. Uh, you know, have fun and with friends growing up and all those things. Of all the things that I hope for in the life of this little baby, isn't that maybe the wonder of, of a new baby? It's just untouched by the cares of the world. Living the first Sunday of his entire life. I hope for him above all of the things this world could give him. And I hope he's richly blessed in every, in every possible way. But of all the things I want him to have new and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, it's what I want for him, it's what I want for his family, it's what I want for my family, it's what I want for my church family, it's what I hope for above everything else for you. That you will know that God made you and God loves you and his grace for you is real and it's amazing. Because nothing could be more important. All who are victorious, who are called and chosen, will be clothed in white. When you're given the new robe, put it on. Starting today, leave the hate behind and let God transform you with the new robe. Start living with love. I will never erase their names from the book of life, Jesus says, but I will announce before my Father and the angels that they're mine, that you are mine. You, 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 everybody who's hearing my voice right now, you're called, you're invited to the banquet. Don't miss it. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song of praise.